if you have a Bible, if you could open up to Colossians chapter 1. There's also Bibles underneath the seats in front of you. If you don't have one, please feel free to take that. That would be our gift to you. It's going to be projected up behind us as well, along with some different points for any note takers here that like to follow along. So last week, Daniel did a fantastic job teaching on the preeminence of Christ. Uh, This grand idea, preeminence is really just a fancy word to mean that Jesus is first place in all things. Um, And the idea of all things, that Jesus created all things, all things are created by Jesus, all things are created for Jesus, all things are held together in Jesus, all things find their completion by Jesus, that Jesus is above all rulers and authorities, that Jesus is before all things, and that Jesus is the beginning and the end of all things. Pastor Daniel said last week that you could judge the success of a sermon by how early and often you hear the word Jesus. So uh, I'm just going to throw the word Jesus around every sentence this morning to stick the landing. Um, The ideas that were repeated throughout last week's passage that Jesus is the firstborn of creation, the firstborn from the dead, and the preeminent one is really saying that Jesus is first place. The next part of our passage is going to kind of build on that idea and make it personal as it probes the question, if Jesus is really first place in all things, does Jesus hold the pole position? Does Jesus hold first place in the hearts of those who claim to be followers of Jesus? We saw last week that We don't make Jesus first place. Jesus is first place. People look at religion and spiritual truth as if it's something that's very subjective and they relegate this idea of truth to this subjective place that things in the spiritual realm are only considered true insofar as they are true to you. And that's why you could share the gospel with somebody which is just filled with categorical objective data and they could say something like, well, that might be true for you, but that's not true for me, or I don't believe that. Well, no, that's not the way that truth works. Truth is truth, regardless of whether your heart believes it to be so or not. Two plus two equals four. Regardless of whether my heart wants to believe that it equals four, it's going to equal four, regardless of the foolishness of my own heart. So we don't make things true. Um, So just like in the truth is truth, whether you agree with it or not, Jesus is preeminent whether you make Jesus preeminent or not. We're not the ones that make Jesus to be preeminent. God the Father declared that Jesus was preeminent. When he said in Philippians chapter 2 that there's going to come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And every knee above the earth, every knee under the earth is going to proclaim that Jesus is truly the preeminent one, that Jesus is first place. But we have verses like 1 Peter 3.15 where we're instructed, sanctify Jesus Christ as Lord over your hearts. So what that means is 
Jesus is Lord, so now recognize him as such, set him apart as such, and give him that place of honor that he is due to have lordship over your heart and your life. So this passage looks at what it looks like to set apart the preeminent one as preeminent, as first place in our hearts. And this passage is going to be pretty theological, but I want to encourage you, don't let that intimidate you. Try to stay locked in. There's one word in this passage that makes it really difficult to interpret, and therefore I'm going to kind of be focusing in on that word. I'm going to go to it and then come back around to the context that sets it up. But because that word is difficult, I'm only going to be doing three verses this morning because of the tension that that word points out. And that's the word if in verse 23. Look with me. It says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. What an odd little word. We don't really like the word if. The word if is conditional. I think that um, when we're preaching, it's a lot of fun to be able to preach things like Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, where it talks about what we did, and then non-conditionally, but God, and here comes God. But then when we put the words if, that's putting responsibility back on us. But what can it mean? Well, first, let me tell you what it can't mean. It can't be referring to your salvation. It can't mean that you remain saved if, or only stay saved if, it's not your job to stay saved any more than it's your job to go and get yourself saved. We are utterly unable to be able to save ourselves. We're utterly unable to be able to keep ourselves saved. That is not what it's referring to. So it can't be referring to salvation. Salvation is 100% the work of Jesus. It's Jesus who saves us. It's Jesus who keeps us. It's Jesus, it's Jesus who says to the Father that those are my children, John chapter 10, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. And it's an important designation to make because people wrongly look at passages like this that refer to our sanctification and make them about our justification. I'll explain those terms in case you're not familiar with them. Justification, for anybody unfamiliar with the term, is this one-time judicial act that happened at a moment in time in your salvation where God took upon himself the unrighteousness of a sinner and declared you to be completely righteous, not guilty in his sight and removed from you the dirt and the stain of your unrighteousness, took it away, took away your filthy garments and clothed you in the, in the clean garments that were purchased by his blood. I was thinking of a cool analogy about our old garments and our new garments of righteousness after justification. Before I knew Jesus, this might come as a shocker to some of you, but I got myself in a little bit of trouble with the law a couple times. You know, when you go to jail, um, so I hear, they take your clothes 
and they give you a fancy new jumpsuit so that you could be comfortable there and enjoy your stay. But when you're released, something funky happens. You go to this holding area where they have a bag containing all of your filthy clothes that you brought in. Newsflash, they didn't send them to the laundromat <laughs> while you were doing time. And they keep those dirty clothes festering in a bag. And upon your release, you put on the same filthy garments that you wore in for your sentencing to begin with. Now you're a free man but you're still clothed in filthy garments. When Christ justified you, he declared you not guilty, and then he took your old clothes out back and burned them. He pronounced that sentence upon himself, and then he gave you his clean garments to put over to cover your nakedness. So it can't be referring to our justification when it uses this word if. So by extension, it can't be talking about the doctrine that we know as perseverance. There's this little term that brings up a tension between two doctrines that are not emphasized as much as they should. And I encourage you to stay dialed in. I know that I'm using some, you know, five cent theological words here, but even if this seems lofty, what Paul does in Colossians so often is he takes a lofty theological principle and he brings it down to such a practical level. This passage really highlights the difference between the doctrine of assurance and the doctrine of perseverance. And I'm going to take a couple more minutes setting that up and then we'll dive into how the passage does it. Perseverance is the belief that Jesus saved you. This is what the doctrine of perseverance means. If you're familiar with the acronym TULIP, this is the P in the TULIP. Perseverance is the belief that Jesus saved you and that you are saved by Jesus to the uttermost. It's sometimes known as once saved, always saved. Said another way, just to use some, some scriptural analogies, no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Said another way, those whom he foreknew, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's no breaks in that chain. So when he decided to justify you, he would make sure that you persevered until the end. Said another way, neither height nor depth, nor anything above, nor anything below, nor any other created thing can snatch you out of his hand. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, not even yourself, because it says no created thing, you are a created thing. Said another way, you didn't do anything to save you, so you cannot do anything to unsave you. This is a closed-handed issue. Sometimes people come to a church and they say, well, the, the different doctrines that you hold to, is this something that is open for interpretation? That'll normally come up when you're talking about things like the spiritual gifts. And people will say, well, do you, you hold to this, but is it okay if I hold to this? Well, perseverance is something that we hold tight-fistedly and closed-handedly. It is too close to the heart of the gospel, and therefore too close to the heart of our Father to not fight for the doctrine of perseverance. If you give up the doctrine of perseverance, you do not have the full, glorious, scandalous gospel that we have believed in. Amen? 
Assurance is somewhat related to perseverance, but it's a little bit different. Assurance is the reality of the hope that you have because of the reality of your salvation. Assurance is the way that God's Spirit testifies to your spirit, showing you that you are in fact truly a child of God. Assurance is an inward testimony that speaks louder than words to your spirit that you are a child of God. Assurance is the voice that tells you you are the beloved's and the beloved is yours forever and ever. Said another way, Perseverance is part of our salvation. Assurance is a fruit of your salvation. And I found that Calvinists, um, again, we're a Reformed church, uh, named my son Calvin because I've been influenced by the writings of John. But I want to be honest about deficiencies in my own camp they tend to avoid the tension because they feel like people are going to either accuse them of preaching a works salvation or suggesting that we can lose our salvation. If you ever want to read about how American Calvinism fused the doctrines of perseverance and assurance, there's a great paper by B.B. Warfield if anybody enjoys such things. But man, we have not upheld the dignity of these two doctrines the way that our passage here in Colossians is going to. Or people can just preach about justification without ever getting to sanctification. And the two don't have to be mutually exclusive. Yes, the way that I grow in Jesus is by understanding just how awesome the gift is that he gave me at my justification. When Jesus declared me to be his, when he declared me to be not guilty, when he took away my filthiness, when he clothed me in his righteousness, that is the power behind our sanctification. But that is not in and of itself the entirety of the doctrine of sanctification. Perseverance is something that Christ has done because we could not. But what about assurance? I'll just ask you a couple questions and we'll dig in. Is assurance something that Christ and Christ alone does for us? Is it that Jesus gives us the assurance of our salvation and that's it? We don't have a part in it. Is it something that we do? As in perseverance is something that Christ does, but assurance is something that you need to do. Or is it both? Is it something that Christ does, but we're in some way included in the if in verse 23 that we're going to be coming back to is a conditional statement based off of whether we do what we are called to do. And the assurance is actually based in this context about Seeing it as a fruit of our perseverance as we continue to be sanctified in Christ and Jesus becomes preeminent over our hearts. So a little roadmap of the three verses we're going to be looking at. In verse 21, we see who we were apart from the gospel. Verse 22, we see what Christ has done for us in the gospel. In verse 22, we see who we are positionally because of the gospel. And then in verse 23, we see continuing and not shifting from our hope in the gospel. So who we are apart from the gospel, verse 21, it says, And you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So who you were apart from the gospel, he gives you three statements of who you are. He said you were alienated. 
He said you were hostile in mind, and he said that you were doing evil deeds. Alienated from whom? Let's break down these terms one at a time as we walk through this. Alienated from God. Contrary to popular belief, you were not out there piously searching for God, and God saw you in the midst of your great piety searching for him and said, you know what? That is somebody who's trying really hard, so I'm going to give them the extra little boost that they need to be able to know me. Frankly, when I look at the way the Bible uses the term alien, I know this is a little bit of a tangent, but believe me, it has gospel implications that are pretty deep. I am appalled at how professing Christians treat illegal aliens with calloused attitudes that they take towards them. Um, when Marcy and I lived in Colorado, we were part of a town that is mostly Latino, and it's a, it's a growing town. And I remember we had a heart to reach out to the Latino community. And back before I moved to Colorado, I had a friend who used to go and get bicycles and, and repair them. And he would give them to different people in the community, but the deal was they had to come and hear him preach the gospel to them in Spanish, and then they would get a bicycle for it. And he began to have deep relationships within the community because of that. And I remember Marcy and I were leading a small group Bible study amongst Christians, and we suggested, why don't we do this as a missionary outreach to our town? And a Christian in that Bible study said, we don't want to do that because that'll make them think that we want them to stay here. I think that Christians need to be reminded that it's not like you went from being an alien to a citizen because you studied up and aced your citizenship exam. The whole point of the gospel is that no matter how many times you took the citizenship exam, you continue to fail and just dig the hole deeper because you can never earn citizenship to a heavenly kingdom. That's the point of the gospel. So Jesus Christ left his father's kingdom and became a citizen of your domain so that Jesus could come and ace the citizenship exam on your behalf. And he left his citizenship so that he could grant you who were an alien his citizenship. Christ became an alien so that he could take a group of aliens and turn you into citizens. How much... Man, I, I couldn't help but think of the scandals that are taking place in college basketball. You know, today is Bracket Sunday. And I'm not all that different from the people that have been scandalized in this. The only thing that I did was show up to the exam and let somebody else ace it for me. That's it. You didn't even bring a number two pencil to fill in the scantron. You hung an F on the refrigerator and boasted about it like it was a work of art. And Jesus Christ took your F and turned it into an A through cosmic substitution on the cross. Just one more quick thought about the term alienated. Everybody's an alien. Uh, you could all just say, I am an alien. And, and it, it would be true. Either you're an alien to this world 
because you have a citizenship laid up for you in heaven. That's what 1 Peter chapter 1 talks about, right? Or you're alienated from God because you're still a citizen of this world. Jesus is the only being of all time to ever have dual citizenship. Do you understand that? When Jesus, that, that's what the kenosis was. That's when Jesus came, that's the incarnation. When Jesus came and put on flesh, he was coming with his green card and he was coming and establishing dual citizenship because that was the only way that he could be able to take you and transport you to a kingdom that you otherwise were in enmity against. The unhappiest person in the world is the person who tries to straddle and live for two opposing kingdoms because they're actually basking in permanent alienship rather than citizenship. You know, it's funny, when I was studying for this, I kept typing alienship into my notes. You know that that's not a word? And I just kept on wanting to turn it into alienship. And um, it's kind of what a church is, right? You're in one big alienship here. And <laughs> the Beatles sung about the guy who tries to straddle two realities. I gave you guys some Snoop theology a couple weeks ago, so how about some John Lennon theology? He's a real nowhere man, sitting in his nowhere land, making all his nowhere plans for who? Nobody. Doesn't have a point of view. Knows not where he's going to. You don't want to be a nowhere man. Jesus Christ came and died for you so that you as a nowhere man could be a somewhere man. But according to this passage, we're not just aliens, you're a hostile alien. Remember all the propaganda that was going around a year ago about how we need to be afraid of all of the aliens because of their hostility? Well, this says right here that you were a hostile alien. Hostile to who? Hostility to God. People don't like to think of themselves as hostile to God. I know that when I was unsaved, I truly wanted to think that God would look down on me and say, that guy's pretty good right there. I mean, he, he hasn't killed anybody. I guess that was my standard of righteousness, right? Because I don't know that there's any other things that I could add to my list at that time other than I hadn't killed anybody. But I, I wore that one like a star. <laughs> um, why would he look at somebody who is hostile towards him and then spit in the face of his peace offering and see him as anything other than hostile? Then it says that we were committed to evil deeds. Evil by whose standards? By God's standards. I didn't think that what I was doing was evil deeds. I thought that I was just accruing things to be able to turn that heavenly balance in my favor so that when I go and see St. Peter at the gates, that it would be tipped. Ah, Eric is 51%. Come on in, buddy. That's not the way that it works. Even my best deeds were as filthy rags before him, and so were yours apart from Christ. Let me quickly point out that this passage is parallel to Ephesians chapter 2, where it talks about how we were aliens, how we were children of wrath, how we were in a place of enmity against God, how we followed the course of the prince of the power of the air, but God being rich in his mercy, by grace you are saved. Let me also point out that these realities right here should keep us both humble and non-judgmental. Apart from Jesus, 
I am alienated, I am hostile, and I have a proclivity towards evil deeds. And so do you. That's what it says there in verse 21. So who are you to judge anybody? Who am I to judge anybody? Like, honestly, if this is saying this is who I am apart from Jesus, and you really believe that you need the gospel to be able to change that, and if you really believe that you didn't make you believe the gospel, but the Holy Spirit grabbed a hold of your heart, stopped you in your sin, and brought you to himself, and the only thing that you brought to the cross was the sin that made it necessary. If you really believe that, how can me, who is a hostile alien, judge other people for being hostile aliens. The only thing good in me is Christ. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 7. How dare I make any form of judgment against another? So what Christ has done for us in the gospel, verse 22, it says, and he has now reconciled us to his body of flesh by his death. We're going to celebrate that in communion in a little bit, aren't we? Isn't that what we celebrate? Isn't that why we take the elements each week because we're looking at the fact that Christ's body was broken for us, that Christ, that calls it a body of death, fascinatingly enough here in verse 22, that Christ became a body of death and you by partaking get to be a part of a body of life because Jesus is not dead anymore, he is alive. So he reconciled you by his body of death. And then it goes into positionally who you are because of the gospel. Verse 22, the end part of it. It says, in order that he might present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So you are holy. You are blameless as a child of God. You are above reproach before Christ. If you are in Christ These realities are true of you today. How glorious is that? If you came here not feeling holy, you're holy as a saint. If you came here not feeling blameless, we're going to see a beautiful passage before I close. He sees you as blameless before him. This is who we are. This is not What I'm saying, this is what we're called to be. The passage will end with this. He presented us this way. You know, like the song, Baby, We Were Born This Way? You were born again this way. This is who you became when you were born again. An analogy, it's not, Jesus is not like me when I used to go to the science fair. You know, when you're just scrapping something together on the bus because you forgot that the science fair was that day. So you're like, does anybody have some vinegar? Anybody have some baking soda? Volcano again. (laughs) Woo! And then you go and present a haphazard, unfinished project. Jesus doesn't see you as as an unfinished project. It says right here in verse 22 that he presented you as complete. So you want to see a beautiful picture of this? Zechariah chapter 3, it says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not the brand that I've plucked from the fire? So is this not my child? Did I not take him out of his place of enmity? Now Joshua is standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments, just like we talked about in the beginning. 
And the angel said to those who are standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you in pure vestments. This is saying that as the enemy was at your right hand to accuse you of all those things that were on your garments, that the Lord himself took away those filthy garments, and then he went and took a clean garment, and he put it on you, and he sees you through the clean garment, and he said, I don't see that anymore, Satan. The Lord rebuke you for trying to point out the filth of garments that I completely took away and eradicated. So we are holy. We are blameless. He sees you as spotless. We just saw that right here in Zechariah 3. This was a prophetic passage that was spoken before the cross even happened. We are above reproach. Above reproach, brothers and sisters, does not mean that we're sinless. It means that if you were to come here and you're in sin and you were to be convicted by God's word, God's spirit, the preaching of God's word, or by the ministry of God's people, that you would repent when that conviction comes before you. Above reproach can't mean sinless. There's only been one who was sinless, and that was Jesus. But it does mean that when an approach of reproach is brought upon you, that you will repent, seek grace to be the covering of that reproach. And we end our passage with this call to continue and not shift from the gospel. Look with me at our last verse. says in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, became a minister. So it starts off with the words that I referenced in the beginning, the words, if indeed, assurance, brothers and sisters, has an if attached. Make sure you're hearing what I'm saying. Perseverance does not have an if attached. The gospel took away that if. Assurance has an if attached. There's really four categories when you talk about assurance. And these four categories are going to include everybody here in one way or another. There are some who have no assurance in this life because they have not put their faith in Jesus. If that's you, we invite you. Let today be the day of your salvation. The Lord is near. If you feel him pressing upon you, if you believe that these words that you're hearing are truth, if you feel that burning in your heart like so many here have some time before, put your faith in Jesus that you might know that assurance. There's another category of those who are walking around with assurance that probably should not because it's a false assurance. Jesus said such scary words in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, there's going to come a day where people are going to stand before me and say, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not cast out demons in your name? Did I not teach others in your name? And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. You were worker of lawlessness. They have this assurance where they were even arguing their case before a holy God. And he's saying, this assurance that you have is not based in reality because I do not know you. There are some here and this is the message of the book of 1 John. So if you're, if you're here and this fits you, I encourage you, do your devotions in the book of 1 John. Memorize the book of 1 John. There are some people who are genuinely saved but have a lack of assurance because they're not living on the other side of the if here in verse 23. And there are some who walk in confidence being able to say, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, 
Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. So the ifs, to wrap up, it says, if you continue in the faith. Assurance is yours if you remain stable and steadfast. Assurance is yours if you refuse to shift from the hope of the gospel. If that's you, I don't know if anybody can identify with this, but I, I, I used to go and worship at a church where they would give like the, the um, if you want to pray the sinner's prayer at the end of the service. So I think I prayed it for about 280 straight weeks because I wanted to make sure that the 279th time I prayed it, that it was legit. And what if it's not? Well, then it doesn't hurt to pray the 280th time, does it? And, and maybe that one's not real, so maybe next week I'll get a chance to pray the 281st time. This is saying you don't, have to, you don't have to go through that. You can have assurance. Your heart can know that you are the Lord's, and the Lord is yours if you refuse to shift from the hope of the gospel. So the conclusion, I want to just bring up the realities that we hit on through the passage. What we were... You're aliens. You're hostile. You're committed to your own bent. What he's done, he brought you into a family through the destruction of his son's flesh on your behalf. We're about to celebrate that in a little bit. We're about to do that in remembrance of him. That's why communion never gets old. Sometimes people have asked me, taking communion week in and week out, does it ever become perfunctory? Does it ever become old? No. No, because we never cease to do it in remembrance of him. There is never old. It never becomes less fresh remembering what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf to be able to take you who are an alien and make you a child of God. Amen? Does that thought ever get old? Does that thought ever get stale? Can you think of a greater thing to celebrate? I, if, if I told you the goofy things that I do week in and week out that don't get old, how could something as precious as the gospel ever get perfunctory? Who we are, you are. Child of God, hear me. Look, look at me. I want to see the whites of your eyes. Who you are is you are holy. You are blameless. You are above reproach before him. There's no shoulding here. I'm not telling you, you should go out and do these things. Now, should there be some sort of progressive holiness and blamelessness and above reproachness in your walk? Absolutely, but positionally, these things are so, and Jesus sees them as complete because he sees you as complete in Christ. We're called to be, you're called to be a people who are stable, steadfast, and not shifting from the hope of the gospel. The danger of not living your identity? You're living constantly a life that goes against the grain. It destroys the hope that you can have by assurance. But the fruit of living in your identity and living out your identity is that you could say, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born in his spirit, washed in his blood, perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture now burst in my sight, angels descending and bring from above echoes of mercy, whispers of love, perfect submission, all is at rest. I am my savior, I'm happy and blessed. 
watching and waiting, look from above, filled with his goodness and lost in his love. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Jesus, thank you that we now go get to partake of your body broken for us, your blood poured out for the remission of sins, to remind us of the praise that we will ever have around your throne, proclaiming holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And it's in your name we pray, amen.